Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Joining us, we're in a series through the book of Acts, and we're in a mini-series called Bridges and Barriers. And this whole series is Paul's second missionary journey. And what we see on Paul's second missionary journey is he is removing barriers so that he can build bridges to tell people about Jesus. So as you turn there, I just want to ask you guys, how many of you remember the first time you had a a Coca-Cola Classic? Can you remember where you were? Long time ago, right, Mike? (laughs) So I, I, I can remember when I was five, this is my mind goes back sometimes three to four but I can remember back when I was five, my, my mom would give me a dollar. And back in the 80s, for a dollar, you could buy a Coca-Cola Classic and a candy bar and he'll still have change left over. So for those of you who are in your 20s or younger, I know that sounds very old. For those of you who are older than me, you're like, I remember when you could do it for 50 cents, right? Five, what? five cents, okay. <laughs> We're going way back. Well, here's the thing about Coca-Cola Classic. And these stats are a little dated, but someone, I don't know how they came up with the the calculation, but someone came up with the calculation that 97% of the world has heard about Coca-Cola Classic. Now think about that, 97% of the world. 72% of the world has seen this can, Coca-Cola Classic, and 51% of the world has tasted Coca-Cola Classic. So that means one out of every two people on planet Earth, according to whoever did this research, and Coca-Cola Classic, originally known as Coke, it's only been out for less than 140 years. I think it's like 136 years. So think about that. In 136 years, most of the world has at least heard about Coca-Cola and half the world has tasted it. So it's been said that if God would have left the evangelization of the world, i.e. sharing the gospel, to Coca-Cola, the world would already know about Jesus, right? But he's left it to us. So how are we doing? If... If something like a product like Coke can get around the world, what about the gospel message about Jesus Christ, who loved you more than you'll ever know, who lived a perfect life that you can never live, who died a sacrificial death on your behalf and for you and in place of you and rose again? I mean, that's the greatest message. So today we're going to see Paul and he finds himself on Mars Hill. And this is a famous sermon, so it's kind of cool when you get to preach about a sermon already laid out, so thanks, Paul, for doing the work for me. The sermon's already laid out, so we're going to talk about Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. And in today's culture, this would be like delivering a TED Talk. If Paul still lived today, this would be like him standing before all these intellects. And How many of you have ever seen a TED Talk before? All right, so this is like Paul's TED Talk to the intellectuals. So let's start in verse 16. And for those of you online, feel free to watch the screen. We'll have the verses. It says, now, when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. 
because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new doctrine of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and all the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood, or one man, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as some of your poets have said. For we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by man's art and man's devising. Therefore, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined them and believed, among them Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message that Paul delivered. And Lord, as he stands at Mars Hill and he delivers this message to the Arapagus, Lord, I pray that we would understand what he's saying to this group of intellectuals. That, Father, um, I know we live in a world where so many intellectuals are and they question things about the existence of God and the exclusive claims of Christ. So, Lord, help us to understand what your word has to say as we look at this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled this message, Making the Unknown God Known. And this is Paul's famous sermon, again, on Mars Hill. And... He's delivering this message to a group of people that really all they do is talk about the latest trends. Do you know people like that that sit around in coffee shops and they talk about what's happening in the news and what's going on with the president and politics? And well, this was this group of people. They they talked about the latest happenings, gave their opinions, and they wanted to find out what was new. This is before Google search existed, right? So before Google, you had Mars Hill. And all the intellectuals would gather together and talk about the latest happenings, what was going on. 
So today I want to give you three basic points on making the unknown God known. The first point is this. Internally, we should be provoked by false religion. Internally, we should be provoked by false religion. So what I want you to see in this passage, I want to take you on a journey to feel what Paul feels, to see what Paul sees, and to put into practice what Paul does. So we're going to feel what he feels, we're going to think what he thinks, and we're going to put it into practice. So look back at verse 16. It says, now when Paul waited for them at Athens, notice the next phrase, his spirit was provoked. That's what Paul's feeling within him when he saw, notice what Paul sees, that the city was given over to idols. So little review from last time we we're in Acts. Uh, Paul almost, they're trying to run him out of the city again. They're trying to kill him. So he leaves and he goes to Athens. And in Athens, he, he finds himself in this place where his spirit is just moved because everywhere he looks, what does he see? He sees idols. And he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come so he has time to walk around, check it out. So as he surveys Athens, he's troubled. Now, a little background of Athens if you look back in history, Athens at one point was the renowned place of the ancient world. It was just an amazing place. And by the time Paul came around, Athens was still known for its intellectual acumen. It was known as like the great think places of the world, uh, hosted a great university, um, the original Olympics. Some of you watched the Olympics. Uh, we know that they, they did the Olympics in Athens. Um, it was just an amazing place. It really thrived in art. And if you would contextualize it to today, think of Athens as Oxford, Harvard, Yale, and Duke all rolled into one place. It was a very academic place. So Paul goes to this place where the people aren't necessarily talking about the Old Testament scripture so much. Now, there was synagogue where they did that. But in the marketplace, they were talking about philosophy, what we would know become known as Greek philosophy. So his spirit was provoked because everywhere Paul looked, there was an idol. And it's been said that it was an easier to meet a God than a man in the city of Athens. But because by the time Paul came to Athens, the population was around 10,000 people. And it's been estimated there were as many as 30,000 gods. So think about 10,000 people, 30,000 gods. So that's a three to one ratio. So for every person, there are at least three gods. Now, let's look at some of their gods that they worship. We don't have time to go into all 30,000, but some of the famous ones. One of the gods and, you know, kind of a, a disclaimer, everyone worships something. So whenever you talk about someone's God, they, they get very passionate about it. Right. So one of the one of the goddess was the goddess of prosperity. So whenever you wanted this money, this favor, you would worship at this temple and you were promised prosperity. And this God, if you worshiped her, it's a goddess, um, you would make offerings in her temple. Her name was Artemis. And when you worshiped her, the idea was you would get prosperity. It was, it was about so for those who craved money, for those who wanted the prestige of a successful life, that was your God of choice in Athens. Another goddess was wisdom. If you were involved in politics, if you wanted to just really have knowledge, in this particular goddess there was a picture of Zeus's head being split open and she was taken out of Zeus's head. I'm talking about Athena. 
Athena was the goddess of wisdom. So for those who wanted wealth, they would go after Artemis. For those who wanted wisdom and knowledge and education and power, and that was their, 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 their striving in Athens, they would go after Athena. Now, there was another goddess that some of us are not familiar with. This was the goddess of victory. If you wanted to be the greatest athlete, the greatest man or woman athlete, if you wanted to jump higher than others, soar through the air, if you wanted to be the man, be the woman, be everyone applauded in the, the stadium, there was another goddess, get this, called Nike. Yes, you can Google it. Nike was the goddess of victory. So if you wanted to just do it, if you wanted just to be the man, the woman, you worshipped at the temple of Nike. And there was another goddess that would be very popular today. This was, ladies and gentlemen, if you wanted to be the prettiest, the most handsome, the one everyone worshipped because of beauty, and if you, if pleasure was your ultimate goal, and you just wanted to have a good time, a one night, you know, you would go worship at the goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. So that's the way Athens was, and there was 30,000 of these gods, and the idea was whatever you pursued, you would literally go to that temple and worship in order to obtain your pursuits. Now, what's interesting today, let's just go back to these goddesses. Does anybody go after money today in our culture? Where the number one thing is success, prestige, and, you know, just having it made, being a self-made man and woman. Do you know of anybody, I know it's not you, but do you know anybody that their whole life exists for making money? Maybe they don't realize it, but they find themselves at the temple of Artemis. They're going after success. Do you know anybody that they're part of the intellectually elite and if you don't go to Ivy League, it's nothing and all of life is about education, 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 education. And education is more important than your relationship with, with Christ. It's more important than anything. The number one goal in life is education. How many of you have been around people like that? That's the whole pursuit of life. Maybe they didn't realize this, but they found themselves at the temple of Athena. Knowledge, wisdom, because knowledge is power, right? So we're told. What about people, do you know of anybody that can quote sports stats from the 1980s and 90s? And they can give you stat and percentage and who won like for the last 50 years. But you ask them to give you a Bible verse and they're, they're stumbling. Is it possible that people worship at the temple of Nike today without knowing it? Ouch. Whenever you talk about idols, people get upset. Now, we can't leave out love and beauty. You know, there's so many people that all they want is just love. They want to be loved. They, they pursue love. And all their life is about feeling loved, feeling beautiful, or pursuing pleasure. And if you just swipe to the right or swipe to the left, you may find what you're looking for. Wow, it's quiet in church today. Because here's the thing. We've got to define what worship is. Worship is anything you devote your time and attention to as the top priority in your life. So has there been times in your life where money was a higher priority than God? Has there been times in your life where pleasure or beauty or success took priority and God took a backseat? Before I point the finger at you, I had to repent through the sermon and say, God, each of these things, there's been times where other things had a priority above you. 
And uh, for me, if I'm not careful, I can worship at the temple of Nike, sports and achievement. And so I had to say ouch as I read this, because here's the thing. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City at the Redeemer Church, he said it like this. Here's how you know if you have an idol. If anything was removed from your life, if you felt like life was not worth living anymore, that's an idol. So for those of you who beauty is important, what about if you lose your beauty? What happens if you get scarred? Would you not want to live? That means beauty is your idol. What about if you lost all your money? Would you still want to live if you became poor? Think about that. Whatever is removed from you and you feel like life's not worth living, that's where you know you have an idol. And just to make it very clear, anything you put first in your life is what you worship. So the point is not that we're we're worshipers. The point is people have faith. A lot of times people say, well, if I just had faith like a Christian. No, you have faith. It's just in something else. We all are worshiping something or someone. It's what do you spend the most time on? What do you think about the most? That's your object of worship. So whereby we don't go to Artemis' temple or any of these other goddesses in worship, we do it with their time. We do it with their money. We do it with their resources. So here's one of the things that life throws at us is commercials. Now I came across this commercial. I want you guys to see this. and It's getting lunchtime, so let's go and play this commercial. Now, do we have a churches in Asheville? I don't think we do, right? I think down in Greenville they have a churches, but we're at church, but not at churches. So, but here's the thing. We're bombarded with commercials, and the idea is that you've got to have this. And if you don't have this, your life is not satisfying, right? Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. All right, all the girls knew it, right? Oh, man. So here's the thing. These things in and of themselves are not wrong. Like, is it wrong to have money? No. But is it wrong to worship money? Yes. Is it wrong to have an education? Anybody would, would, would you say education is wrong? No. But if that's your number one pursuit in life, then it's a problem. Is it wrong, to, guys and girls, to have sports and to be athletic? Absolutely not. But if that's what you worship. And what's interesting, and Joe and Amy, we've talked about this some, is like you can go to someone with a sports game and they're so excited and emotional you take them to church and they're like a different person like about falling asleep. And it's like, so this one place, it gets you excited and enthused. But when it comes to God, it's like, hey, wake up, right? Ouch, that's hard. But it's a truth. So here's the thing. What Paul realized as he looked around and it said his spirit was provoked. He was, he was really upset because he knew that behind every idol was not just a thing, but there's a thing behind the thing. Look at the person next to you and say, there's a thing behind the thing. (laughs) You're like, what are you talking about? The thing behind the thing is behind every idol is a demon. And you're like, what are you talking about? Let me read to you what Paul said in another passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. He says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything rather The things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So here's the thing. Paul knew 
that this little inanimate object, this idol, was nothing, but there was something spiritual behind that nothing, you know? And it's like sports, nothing wrong with sports, but when sports becomes your worship, it's funny. I, I, I enjoy sports, and some of you tell me I give too many sports illustrations. I'm sorry, but what's interesting, when I listen to these sports shows, it's almost like they're preaching. Have you ever heard? I mean, it's like... You know, good example, and I'm not going to use a LeBron illustration today, but Stephen A. Smith, he's a commentator. When he talks about sports, it's like he's preaching a sermon. And I'm like, this guy is so passionate. And he, and he gets paid millions of dollars just to go off about whoever. And I'm like, what if we took the Bible that way? What if we got excited about the Bible and went off? I mean, what if we started making shows about what's happening in church life and Christian walk? And, and it became so popular, people were watching us for TV shows. I mean, wouldn't that be a different culture? I mean, what grabs your attention, what grabs your affection, that's what we worship. So Paul realized the city was worshiping, but the wrong thing. They're worshiping the wrong God. And here's what you've got to realize, that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only truth. Jesus is the only life. Nothing else can satisfy you. That which is not eternal is eternally out of date. So beauty, it doesn't last it's nice, but it doesn't last. Sports, guess what? You've got to retire one day. You're not going to be the man or the woman all your life. Tom Brady will retire one day, right? <laughs> one day. I mean, whatever you, like money, you can make a lot of money, but guess what? Either it, you're going to spend it or you're going to leave it to your kids. It doesn't go with you, right? So no matter what you focus your time on, none of these things in and of themselves are bad, but it's not a substitute for God. And here's the way God has made us. All of us are made with a cross-shaped void in our life. God has created us to be worshipers. And the truth is everyone, I don't know what the population is, over 7 billion, over 7 billion on people on planet Earth are worshiping something, but they're not worshiping all of them. are not worshiping the right thing, right? So what we're going to see in this sermon, just a little preview, is Paul is going to actively seek out people. He's going to seek out the seekers, and he's going to make the known God to those they consider him unknown. He's going to say, what you worship unknowingly, I'm going to make known to you. So internally, we should be provoked by false religion because false religion leads you to nowhereville. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're driving up a mountain and there's beautiful peaks and you're climbing higher and higher and higher. But what if you realize that as you're climbing up the mountain on the other side of this road is a cliff? Would you want to keep driving? Right. You would want to stop. Right. You would want someone to say you're driving up a cliff. So many people are climbing higher the corporate ladder. They're climbing higher success. They're climbing higher, whatever it may be. And they feel like they're getting higher. But what they don't realize is they're getting ready to go off a cliff because you eventually die one day. You eventually stand before God one day. And what what Paul's encouraging all of us is don't go off the cliff. You may realize that you're climbing higher, but you may be on the wrong peak. You may be getting ready to go off the cliff. So internally, we should be provoked by false religion. Number two, personally, we should be engaged with spiritual seekers. So in verses 17 through 21, I'm not going to read it all back again, but look at verse 17. It says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. So most likely in the synagogues, Paul is going to use the Old Testament scriptures and show how Jesus is Messiah. He, he had to suffer. He had to die. He had to be resurrected. That's what he did to the Jewish synagogues. Now in the marketplace, notice what happened. In the marketplace daily, he reasoned with them. 
He, he talked to them. And it says in verse 17, there were certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, we understand where Paul's at. First of all, this is Mars Hill. This is known as the Areopagus. And Mars Hill, we've got a picture here. Look how beautiful that is. It's like this on the, the high rocks. And the, you talk about cliffs. They're everywhere. But this was just an amazing, beautiful place. And as they talked, Paul ran into two groups that were two schools of Greek philosophy. So the first group was the Epicureans. How many of you have heard of the Epicureans before? Okay, they, they were very popular. And basically, their, their philosophy was the whole world is made of atoms, right? So the only thing that really matters is matter, right? You're, you're made up of atoms, it's material existence. They believe that the world was governed by physical laws of the universe. And so in order to really have any experience of life that's worthwhile, you have to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. In other words, I just want to be happy, right? The pursuit of life was happiness. That's Epicurean philosophy. We wonder where we get it. So at the core, they were hedonists. And at the core, they believe that, yeah, God may exist, but he's distant. He's not really involved in our lives. So the, the reality is they believe in the afterlife, you would just dissolve. You would be fertilizer, fuel for the worms and the plants. So after you died, there was no afterlife for most of the Epicureans. So here's the philosophy. Eat, drink, and what? Be merry, for tomorrow we die. So it makes me think of these People that believe that the world is a material place. It reminds me of a song. Wasn't there a song? We are living in a material world and I am a material girl. Who sang that? That's Epicurean philosophy. Someone else came along and said, all I want to do is have some fun. I've got a feeling I'm not the only one. Who sang that? Shell Crow. Yeah, okay, we're doing music. So that's Epicurean philosophy. Hey, material world, live it up. All I want to do is have some fun. That's Epicurean. So that was pretty popular because, hey, let's have pleasure. Let's avoid pain. Right. All right. The other one was the Stoic philosophers. The Stoic followed the teaching of Zeno. He lived 332 B.C. to 326 B.C. And basically they were pantheists. While while the Epicureans was all about matter and let's pursue pleasure, avoid pain, The Stoics were like, you know, there's this universal consciousness, right? And this universal consciousness is God is in everything. He's in the plants. He's in the trees. He's in you. He's in me. He's in your cat. He's in your dog. God's in everything. So what we got to do is get in sync with the universal consciousness. That sounds like what? New Age movement, principles of Hinduism. And the idea behind that is got to get in harmony with the universe, in order to get with the harmony of the universe, it's about self-mastery. You've got to deny self, and you don't want to get too high, nor you don't want to get too low. And the idea is if you can become impassionate about life, you're not too high or too low, nothing's going to bother you, and you're going to go by wisdom principles, you're going to have duty to society, and life is going to be okay. So don't let anything phase you. It's kind of like what the British used to say, have a stiff upper lip. And there's a saying that we say, and I've been guilty, I'll be the first to confess, and after I study this, I had to repent. But have you ever said this saying, it is what it is? Where's God in that? Right? If you say it is what it is, you're basically saying that whatever's going to happen, it's just the universal, it's going to happen, I can't change it. That's determinism. That's leaving God out of the place. So Christian, 
If you go by biblical theology, you've got to get rid of the saying, it is what it is. No, it's what God says what it is, not it is what it is. That's more of a Stoic philosophy. It is what it is. Whatever's, whatever's going to happen, going to, no. That's if you leave God out. And God is work. He's not distant. No, God is imminent. He's working in our culture. He's working in our society. And I just say it is what it is, and I kick it to the curve. And I'm saying whatever God wants, he's going to intervene. This may be what it is, but listen, Jesus can change what it is. Faith is being certain of what you hope for and what you don't see, right? It's having this belief that God can change what's going to happen. So, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, fast forward, he was a pastor. This is in the 40s. He was preaching to this elite group at Oxford University. And as he was preaching to this predominantly group of students, college, postgraduate, Oxford grads, one of the people stood up after the service. He had a Q&A time. And we don't do those much anymore, but they're kind of cool. And the student said, listen, I really appreciated the structure of your sermon. And he started pontificating very well. And uh, Dr. Martin Lord Jones found out later this was like the leader of the debate society at Oxford. And he was studying to be a lawyer. And he said, your sermon was good, but it was so basic that you could have gave this to farm boys. And you're speaking to this academic elite group. And Dr. Dr. Lord Jones didn't skip a beat. He basically said, listen... I think people at Oxford, as nice as you are, you're just clay like the rest of us, and you're just basic sinners like the rest of us, and you need to repent. And the guy was, like, humbled, and everyone cheered and applauded Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And what he was saying that no matter if you're the intellectually elite or you're the common laborer, we all need Jesus. We all put our shoes on the same way, right? We all wake up, breathe the same air. We all need to repent and believe the gospel is kind of the essence so notice how Paul handled his inner turmoil. First of all, let's look at what he didn't do. He didn't yell at the people. He didn't protest. He didn't hit them upside the head with the Bible. Um, he didn't boycott their business. He didn't protest their politics. But what did Paul do? He reasoned with them. You may want to write in your notes, start a conversation. And what I want you to see is Paul handled these people differently than he did the Jewish people. The Jewish people... He started with what? The Bible, right? The Old Testament scriptures. But with the intellectuals who did not believe the Bible, he started a little differently. And he presented Jesus to them towards the end. And it's, it's, it's basically the idea behind we've got to know who our audience is. And we've got to realize that we've got to connect with these people, build a bridge to them. So personally, we should seek the seekers, so I want you to know that all around you are seekers. Everyone around you is a worshiper. They're worshiping something. And what we've got to do is enter into a conversation to see, let's follow the road. Is this leading to a mountaintop top peak or is this leading off a cliff, the lifestyle you're living? Where is it heading? What's the end of this? So actively engaging others with the gospel helps to make known the God who's once unknown around us. And this year, we're challenging all of you to have how many conversations total? A thousand gospel conversations. So email the church office as you have them. Continue to send those emails in. We're starting to get stories in. And we want to hear your story. How are you having conversations? How are you seeking the seekers? So one, I ask for your prayers. I'm going to hopefully be meeting up, at least talking to a young man that I have about a 20-year history with. Um, many of you know I started youth ministry as a, as a teenager. I was a teenager ministering to teenagers. 
And there was one, one guy in my youth group that was just really hard, hard to get through to. And finally, I was able to lead him to Christ, at least the profession of Christ. And it was, it was the time of his baptism day. And he's like, I don't want to get baptized. I'm like, did you accept Christ or didn't you? And, and it, he almost backed out of baptism and we almost had to like dunk him under because he didn't want to go down. It was just like, I'm not going down without a fight. Just kidding. He willingly did it, but I had to, you know, do some debate with him. Are you following Christ or not? What's the deal? So it comes time to youth camp. And as a youth pastor, you go to summer camp. How many of you have been to summer camp as a student? That's always fun, right? Can be, can be crazy. So everyone's on the bus except to this young man. Where's he at? So I had to run to his, drive to his house. and like, listen, the bus is about to leave. We, summer camp, you got to go. He backed out. He, I, I couldn't drag him to summer camp. So he left, didn't come. So fast forward in his 20s, I look on his Facebook wall and I see that he's all of, all of a sudden part of another religion now. And I'm just like, what's, what's the deal? You know? And so it's like, there are people that we got to continually pursue and have conversations with. And it's not easy. It's not easy. Sometimes these conversations are tough, but here's the reality. If you have the truth, you shouldn't be ashamed to have conversations. And some people will say, what if I don't know the answer? It's okay not to know. Just say, hey, I'll get back to you on that. That's number one thing. I'll get back to you on that. Let me research that some more. Because a lot of people are afraid to share because what if I don't have the answer? It's okay not to have the answer. Just say, hey, let me get back to you on that. That's a good question. All right, number three. So internally, we have this tension. Personally, we seek the seekers. And number three, publicly, we should be proclaiming the truth of God's word to the world. Now, Paul's sermon is quite lengthy, so I don't have time to go down every phrase and nuance. But look at verse 22. It says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that all things are very religious. For as I was passing through considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So let's look at Paul's formula for connecting with people. This is so profound if you look at what he did. First of all, Paul found common ground. He said, listen, you guys are very religious. He didn't say, hey, you guys are worshiping demons. And he didn't start there. He said, listen, you guys are very religious. I see your objects of worship. So what you got to do is try to affirm people where they're at, the things that are true. So like if someone's passionate about something, you can say, man, I really appreciate the fact you're passionate about, say, the homeless in our, in our area. Find a common ground that we both agree with. A lot of times as Christians, we try to find what they're completely wrong about initially, and then we turn them off before we even have a conversation. So find a common ground. Hey, you care about the homeless and the poor? I do too. You know, try to get the me too. Oh, you, you, you're against racism? I'm against racism too. Find the common ground so you can start a conversation. Don't. Don't push them away before the conversation even starts. And Paul built the gospel bridge. He started from where the people were to where he wanted them to go. Notice in the passage, Paul did not start with uh, a sermon from the Old Testament, like you would in a synagogue. What did he start with? He started with the idea that there's a creator God. He's the creator. And he led down the way to eventually he's going to judge you. He's going to judge the world. So God is creator and he's going to judge the world through Jesus. So he built the bridge and he started with this altar. Hey, you guys have this altar. And it says to the unknown God. And here's the background behind it. They were so religious. They're like, the idea was, what if we left a God out? In our 30,000 gods, what if we just left a God out? 
Let's have an altar. Someone came up with this, they thought, brilliant idea. Let's have an altar to the unknown God, just in case, hey, we're going to cover all the bases. And if we left one out and stand before God, hey, that, that's who we were worshiping, the unknown God. We just didn't know about it, right? So Paul started there and he said, that which you do not know, the unknown today I make known to you. So he, he taught the key truths of Scripture to build the, the, the message. So let's look at the key truths. I know there's a lot of fill in the blanks in your listening guide. So we're just going to hit the highlights. Number one, God is a creator of this world. So we started, okay, listen, there's a God that's above and beyond all. He created the world. That was his first point. Number two, God is the ruler of all. He is Lord. So he is the God of all gods. All these other idols that you worship, he's the top. And he's, he's going he's to get more specific. God alone is to be worshipped, number three. So this whole pantheistic idea, God's in everything, or you worship 30,000 gods, the God I'm talking about is so exclusive, he's the only one to be worshipped. Number four, God made humans, mankind in his own image. So he's going to really hit them. Why are you making idols? Because we're all made in the image of God. And God can't be contained in the image because we are his images. We are made in God's image. And number five, God made humans from one blood that's Adam. Now, a side note, this would be a blow to the Greek mindset because they thought that they were the stuff. The Greeks were it and everyone else were called. Does anybody know what the non-Greeks were called? Barbarians, right? So for him to say, listen, we all come from Adam and we're all descended from Adam and his bloodline eventually through Noah. It's like that was a blow to the Greeks pride of thinking they were it. Number six, God is sovereign over human history. Now, that's a point we should really, in your own time, drill into. He put us here on earth, and he determines the rise and falls of all nations. So when you look at culture and civilizations, what Paul says is God is sovereign over that. He determines the rise and falls. He knows what's going to happen. Read the book of Daniel. God is sovereign over the nations. And there's a time for a nation to be built up. And there's a time when a nation falls. God is over that and he's sovereign over that. And get this, God has determined where each of us live. So the fact that you were born where you're born, the timing of it and the place of it and to your parents, do you know that was part of God's plan? And you're like, Timothy, you don't know my parents. (laughs) You don't, listen, God has a plan behind it. Even if you were born in really bad situation, God wants to bring something beautiful out of something really bad. So here's the beautiful thing about it is your life has purpose because God has you here for such a time as this. We are we are one of the best times to be alive. I know it's hard. I know it's crazy. But God has you here for a certain reason. Amen. Number seven, seven point of Paul's sermon. God is working in everyone's life to bring them to himself. So here's the idea. God is the ultimate seeker. And he is seeking after us. And it says that. He's made people with this, this, this urge to worship. The problem is they're worshiping the wrong things. So what does God do? God is the ultimate seeker who is seeking after you. Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. So there's a lot of theological debate about, well, man doesn't seek after God. And I get all this. I get depravity. But here's the thing. God is seeking after them. Even when we weren't seeking after him, he's seeking after us. And he's, he designed us where we live and all this so that it said that some may grope for him. Look back in verse 27. It says, so they should seek the Lord in the hope they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from all of us. Number eight, we find our light and our life in God. In him we live, we move, and what? 
we have our being. Number nine, God is too big to be contained in any object or building. So a lot of times we think of the church building as the church. But let me just reemphasize what Paul said. God cannot be contained by a building. Now, this is sacred space for us because it's meaningful for us because we connect with God. But God doesn't live in a man-made building. That's what Paul is saying. So don't don't limit God by a building. Don't limit your worship experience by just a building or a set place. There's some people like, well, I can't worship God at this place. I miss my home church back. Listen, you're limiting God to a building. God is not limited by any building. This is sacred for us because this is where we have memories and experience. But Paul tells us God is not living in any building. Guess what? Here's the secret. He lives inside of you. He lives inside of me. That's the building he chooses to live at. You are the temple of God. Amen. All right, number 10. I'm going through fast because Paul had a long sermon. God is calling everyone everywhere to repent. So his 10th principle is that, you know, in former times, God overlooked this. In other words, he was being patient with, with all of society. But now the gospel is being proclaimed. So people were without excuse. So he's calling everyone everywhere to repent. So someone's listening that's intellectual say, well, Timothy, what about someone in 10 buck two that's never heard the gospel? What about a person that doesn't have Internet that never heard about Jesus? That's a valid question, right? Well, Paul gives us that answer in Romans 1 and 2. He says that men and women are without excuse because a few reasons. Number one, there's creation. Creation itself teaches there's a God. Number two, there's your conscience. Knowing right from wrong, that's God-given. And God's going to show you, like, hey, that's wrong, hey, that's right. A third witness that we have is history. If you look at history, history is his story. So you're like, but still, you can believe in a creator, but what about Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is this. Throughout Scripture, we see that if you respond to the light that God gives, because God's the ultimate seeker, he gives more light. So think about the wise men. These guys were astrologers, right? Astronomy, astrology, whatever. They, They were following the stars. And we don't know exactly their full history, but that most likely they weren't believers, right, at this point. But God shows them a star. They believed in you know, signs in the sky, so they followed the star. As they followed that light, who did it lead to? Led to Jesus. Okay, one example. Another example, Cornelius, I believe he's around Acts 10, if I remember. Um, he was a worshiper of God, but he didn't know about Jesus. He responded to the light that he had, and guess what? God gave him more light. So for the person that's never heard, if they respond to the light that God gives, he gives more light and more light and more light until eventually they meet Jesus. So we are all without excuse. God is not limited by the Internet or anything else. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the way God gets his word out, he sends light. And as you respond to light, the general revelation eventually leads to the special revelation. We all have to go through Jesus to be saved. But Jesus is being presented to everyone everywhere through the power of the gospel. And number 11, God will judge humanity by his son, Jesus So the idea behind that is he's talking to these intellectuals in Athens at the Areopagus. And he basically says, listen, you guys are so smart. But what you need to realize is Jesus is going to judge you. You're going to have to stand before the judge. So you need to repent right now. So I love how Paul went in and said, listen, you can't overthink this. God is creator and Jesus is going to judge the world. You need to repent and believe the good news. And finally, number 12. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus is indeed the savior of the world. So here's the here's the linchpin to all the intellectuals at Mars Hill. 
If you don't believe anything I'm saying, let me tell you this, the resurrection proves that what I'm saying is true. And if you can believe in the resurrection, it all makes sense. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. Christianity is not Christianity without the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. So to your atheist friend, start a conversation with him or her. Talk about the proof and evidence, even in science, that there is a creator God. The world just couldn't have exploded out of nothing. There is intelligent design. And work with that and appoint them to the intelligent designer. And then point them to Jesus and you have a conversation. So notice the results. Some of them mocked. And part of that is the Greek culture. A lot of the Greeks believed that the body was evil. And you want to get rid of the body. You want to free the body. So you want to free the soul so the body's gone. So for them to have the body come back, that was just appalling to them. They're like, you kidding me? The body, they thought the body, many of them thought the body was evil. But then some said, we want to hear you further on this matter. And we have uh, Dionysus, who was part of the council. So we have someone that was prominent, part of the Areopagus. And then we have a woman named Demarius. So we don't know who this woman is, but she was renowned for that, that, that time. So here's the thing. I want to summarize it like this, that, you know, Paul's message is hard. You know, when we think about worship, people get angry when you talk about their idols. Right. And if you got mad today, you might want to say, is there an idol I'm worshiping? But here's the response. Just like when I read this scripture and I'm like, wow, Nike and wow, all these. And I'm like, and I had to ask myself the question, are there times in my life where I give more attention to this than to God? Are there days when I give more attention to this than to God? You know, like for me, it may be watching a four hour game and I spend like five minutes of the Bible. I mean, is that in proportionate to my worship of God? I can't say that for you, just for me. And there are times where I have to say, yes, God, I for this day or this season, I put something above you. You weren't at the center of my life. This was now all these things have their context, beauty, pleasure, success. All these things in, in Christ can have their context, but when you pursue them as means to an end, and that's your, that's your pursuit, then it becomes tendency that this may be my God that I'm worshiping. So if that's you today, you just got to say, God, forgive me of my idol, whatever that may be. Forgive me the things that take my time and attention, affection, and devotion. You know, God, if I'm guilty, I'm, I'm willing to pay $1,000 for this ticket, but I struggle to do anything for your work. Forgive me. I mean, you, you could fill in the application for yourself. If you struggle with the things of God, but you're free with the things that please yourself, you may have an idol in your hands. So for the seeker, I just want to encourage you that you didn't come here by mistake. You came here by divine appointment because God is seeking the seekers. He's going after you. And here's the thing. The reason why you're here today or you're listening online is God is seeking you. And you're like, well, I struggle with the step of faith of believing in Christ. I don't have that faith. Let me reframe it that you have a lot of faith. It's just in all the wrong things. You have faith in your favorite sports star or in your 401k or the stock market. Or what, you have faith in a lot of things, but you've got to place that faith in the rightful one, Jesus Christ. So the big idea today, before we go into application steps, let's throw it on the screen. Actively engaging others with the gospel helps make known the God who was once unknown to the spiritual seeker. So what Paul did is he said, see this altar? It says to the unknown God, this God I make known to you. So how do we contextualize this some 2,000 years later? 
Number one, let's look at the action steps. Worship. Make sure that Jesus is the focus of your life and worship. Reject and repent of putting anything or anyone in the place of Jesus. So, you know, my question is, if I had to repent of this, do you have to repent of this? Like, is there anything in your life that gets more of your attention and passion and emotion and affection than Jesus? If so, do what I did. Just say, God, forgive me. All right, number two. Seek out seekers to share the message of Jesus with. Just like I, my friend, I was compelled sending this message. Timothy, you've got to go after this guy. I Facebooked him and said, hey, can I call you? Can we start a conversation? He said, sure. There may be someone in your life that they're seeking in all the wrong places. They're worshiping all the wrong gods. It may be sports. It may be beauty. It may be pleasure. It may be whatever. And what you can say is you guys are very religious. You're very passionate. Can I tell you about someone that's worthy of your passion? Someone that's worthy of your worship. His name is Jesus. And finally, love people where they are and seek to lead them to where Jesus wants them to be. So have a conversation. I love how Paul did not hit them overhead with the Bible. He started a conversation that eventually led them to the principles of the, the scriptures, that God is creator. And then he ended with Jesus. Jesus is the judge. So here's the thing. However you start, you always want to end with Jesus. So if, you, if you're talking to atheists that doesn't believe the Bible, you may have to start at 3,000 foot. There's a creator out there and talk about intelligent design. If you're talking about someone that knows the Bible, you, you start with there because that's the reference point. But the bottom line is it always ends with Jesus and the gospel. It always ends with that. So make sure that you have Jesus in the midst of it. However you start it, you always end it with Jesus in the gospel. Amen? Let us pray.